pledge allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, not as of your kidney, or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now, if you don't Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys would have it. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald. In this episode, I'll be discussing the 1975 rock opera, Tommy, based on The Who's 1969 album. To join me today, I'd like to welcome on the show a great friend of mine, passionate rock and roll, and Who fan, and all-around great guy, Mr. Michael Bagford. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Oh, I'm doing good, Josh. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Thanks for taking some time to do this. I've been looking forward to it. I have been too. It's uh, we kind of been delayed for a couple of months because I think we were going to do this like a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah, I got. Uh, he's busy. been busy, and I've been busy. Yep, busy on both sides. With this movie that we're doing, I needed some time to sit and let it percolate, and it's a lot oh, to digest with this not. movie. <laughs> we'll get into that for sure. And for those who haven't figured out what movie we're talking about tonight, we're going to be discussing. The Who's Tommy, which is based on their album from 1969. Before we get into the movie, I guess tell us a little bit about yourself, Mike. How did you find rock and roll? How did you get into being such a huge music fan? Um, I was about the age of three. Um, I don't know what prior music experience I had to that. Um, I know that my parents and their friend Mike, who I'm named after, mm. um, they got the new Pink Floyd album out at the time, which was in 1987, called The Momentary Lapse of Reason. Oh, yeah. And they played the song called The Dogs of War, and it's like my mind just did a snap, and like I instantly <laughs> got hooked into Pink Floyd. And <laughs> I love it. How many people do you hear that whose first band at the age of three is Pink Floyd? That's kind of unusual. It's pretty cool. Yeah, not that many. It's usually no. like Thor the Explorer or Team Umizoomi <laughs> or some stuff like that. Exactly. <laughs> Especially that particular album. Yeah, that, man, that's one of my favorite Pink Floyd albums. Mm, I gotta I revisit it. It's some, been years. That's a great album. Mm. And so that, that was the particular song that kind of hooked you and there was no looking back? Yeah, no looking back after that. This took on rock and roll pretty much after that. Mm. Obviously, like, any, you know, like most people, I got into the Beatles at a pretty young age, but before I got into rock and roll, it was actually a lot of country for me, like a lot of old, like Patsy Cline, Loretta Lynn kind of stuff that my grandma would listen to all the time. I think the first album that I really fell in love with was probably, I want to say it was, <laughs> and not a lot of people know what this album is, but it's it was the um, Steve Forbert album, Jack Rabbit Slim. I don't know if you are familiar with that at all, because singer-songwriter from the early 70s. And my dad had the Yeah, vinyl. definitely not familiar with that. Yeah, he's kind of in the vein of like maybe uh, James Taylor, um, Jackson Brown kind of thing. He had a couple radio hits like Romeo's Tune was a big song. And for some reason, I just remember being really intrigued by the by the album art on that. And I stole it from my dad's record collection and listened to it. And I loved the music on it. It was kind of lightweight, but it had enough of a rock kick to it to kind of be like, oh, this is edgy. <laughs> and so then that was my first window into know exploring deeper into rock and roll and then i think after that it was paul mccartney's ram that i got into and really really couldn't stop listening to over and over again yeah my favorite paul mccartney album is ram i love that album oh yeah it's funny how at the time it was so poorly received i know it's such a pop i mean it seems like it's everybody's favorite mccartney album now and then you Mm -hmm. like read back in the day about and it's like oh this album's not that good and you know all that Mm. and that's pretty much ridiculous yeah and i think a lot of it too was the backlash of him breaking up the beatles a lot of people felt like he was still betraying his friends by putting out solo albums before they did and i think there was a lot of that attitude and people weren't really listening to the music yeah even though john lennon was doing solo albums with yoko ono even when they were in the beatles so right right i reached out to you to do this movie because I know that you are a huge, huge Who fan. And this is a movie I really, really wanted to revisit because I hadn't seen it in many years. And I remembered a lot of the key scenes, the ones that everybody remembers, see how it held up for me. So I figured you were the perfect man for the job. Yeah, man, that film freaked me out as a kid. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's it's just a weird entry into the who's history too it's just it stands out like a sore thumb it sure does ken russell and ann margaret and all their careers it's such a unique just piece of film and art you can't really classify it in any genre or, or anything it's just like one of those crazy music films from the 70s along with sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band it's yeah you kind of wonder what they were thinking when they made that film. Right. <laughs> I think I can tolerate Tommy a bit more than Sgt. Pepper. Even though you do got a good soundtrack on that Sgt. Pepper film. You do. For the most part. For the, right, exactly. Same thing with Tommy. Again, we'll get into it, but there's some things I like more on the soundtrack, or better on the soundtrack album than I do on the original album, which... I don't know if that's considered blasphemous, but... There's a couple of tracks I like from the film soundtrack over the album, but mm-hmm. my opinion might be a little bit different as we go along into this. Tell me a little bit about Finding the Who, and I know you, they have a huge impact on your life. When I started getting into the Who, um, it's I'll take you back in time. It was about 1994, mm-hmm. and I watched a lot of MTV, and... At the time, they were uh, talking about Woodstock 1994 that was around. And so to capitalize on that, um, they reissued the Woodstock film in the 25th anniversary. Being a big rock music fan, I was already into uh, Jimi Hendrix and Santana at the time, and they're in that Woodstock film. So I rented it from the Blockbuster back in the day. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Still kind of a fan of Hendrix. A little bit Santana still. Yeah, I never got into them too Um, much. I kind of dropped off of off of Santana after the supernatural era with Rob Thomas and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It got a little because, cheesy. <laughs> I know because it was funny thing. I was listening to Santana before that. And then like, it seemed like when that album came out, then everybody in school was listening mm-hmm. to that. And it's like, when did they become cool again? They're not cool to me anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> they, I right. forgot they had such a huge part of the Woodstock, the original Woodstock. Yeah, that was like the film that broke them. It was also the film that kind of broke the Who more into America. I mean, they were starting, they were making a big name in America. Not a big name, but kind of more of a name in America at this time. Um, they did have their biggest single back in 1967, which is I Can See for Miles, which mm-hmm. we'll get back to I was watching the Woodstock film and of course there's Joan Baez and oh, you know she's talking about <laughs> how her husband got the got in jail over pot and then after that sequence it's like these loud thunderous chords and you see this guy jumping with his guitar and then then you see <laughs> Roger Daltrey and he's singing this great song called see me feel me and this band rocks i mean they have a awesome drummer that's flowing around their singer with his fringe jacket and twirling his microphone and banging his tambourines together and the crazy guitarist wailing about with his arm on the <laughs> guitar and and then john Entwistle just standing solid as a rock but his fingers are going faster than the other band members right <laughs> I can't even imagine people's reactions then, because that was so left field of what everybody else was doing back then. Pre-metal, pre-punk. Maybe like the only other person that had flares, maybe Jimi Hendrix. But I mean, Mm. in that Woodstock footage, it's just, I mean, him playing the guitar pretty much. Yeah, the Who were really, they were just straight up meat and potatoes rock and roll. Yeah, even like in the middle of 1967, they might have, they had like one psychedelic song called Relax on the Mm. Who sellout, but yeah. Other than that, and maybe a couple of other songs, they're just pretty much in-your-face rock and roll. After Woodstock, I wanted to check out more of The Who, so the first Who album I got was the Kids Are All Right soundtrack. And one of the songs off of there was I Can See For Miles. And it's, it's a kick-ass single. Um, I know really, Pete really Townsend is. had some problems with with the public on it because they were pretty much a big singles band back in the UK around the mid sixties. And mm. he wanted to kind of have this one. as like his ultimate statement for the who, and he thought it'd be like a number one and it got to number 10 in the UK, which yeah. sounds, <laughs> I know like, <laughs> Oh man, right. lower reaches of the chart. But it's, it was also like the biggest, it was the biggest hit in the States still for the who it went to number nine. I know you deceive me, now here's a surprise I know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles 
Yeah, my dad covered it back in high school because I was like, I was starting to get in the Who, and I just asked my dad about the Who, and he mm. wasn't really much of a big Who fan, um, mm. but he did play drums in his high school, and when I could see for miles was out. Uh, that was one of the songs he played. It's like one of the first songs I noticed, really noticed drumming, because I think before then, I was just kind of like a fan of songs, really. I wasn't really paying attention to musicianship all that much. I had a pair of drums that my cousin gave to me, but I didn't really play around on them a lot. But man, I heard this I Can See for Miles, and man, what he's doing on the drums, it's, it's you know, it's not your typical 4-4. It's kind of all over the place. It's like an orchestra doing it. It, it really is. It's almost like it's entirely Phil's. The whole song is him just playing Phil's. Yeah, when Simon Phillips uh, toured with The Who back in 1989 as their drummer, it's pretty much said, like, the song's kind of far out there. It's just, yeah, pretty much like what you said. It's just a whole song of fills, and that's pretty much the way Keith Moon played. And he didn't really use a hi-hat all that much. It's more just cymbals and hitting the drums everywhere. Yeah. I got to say, your dad must be one hell of a drummer to be able to play that live. <laughs> I, I don't know how well he did back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> I can see for Miles was the inspiration behind Helter Skelter, right? Yeah, because uh, Paul McCartney was reading like the Melody Maker, one of those big newspapers in the UK, saying that they made the most loudest, ugliest sounding rock record. And <laughs> McCartney is like, well, I'll try to top that. Right. And He's not one with- to be one-upped. Exactly. So do you have like a maybe like a top three Who songs? Um, yeah, I think I do have a top three. It's mm. it's kind of hard to narrow it down, but I kind of yeah. have a couple that stand out. I have my number one. Mm. I have to come up. If you want, I can name mine real quick if you need some thinking time. Oh, go ahead. Okay. I actually wrote down five that come to mind. Unfortunately, they're kind of predictable choices. I love Can't Explain. It's not the most exciting. It's not the most sonically adventurous Who song, but I love the energy. And I love how how raw it is. I can see for miles is one of them. Baba O'Reilly is up there for me too, I'd have to say. It really is just like a perfect rock song. The second I hear that synthesizer that shimmers when the opening, I just like Yeah, I get it's I just get so excited I get chills. If you listen to The Who chronologically, it's amazing that the quantum leap in production values that happens between Tommy and Who's Next, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I love The Kids Are Alright. I love that song. And probably Love, Rain, or Me would be my number five. I had to include something from Quadrophenia. Got to. <laughs> find myself generally favoring early who i sort of like i have some awesome singles oh yeah i noticed that i tend to be more of a singles oriented music listener rather than an album oriented music listener i think it's just because i have a short attention span hey you like what you like there's so so many more classics i think my favorite album is again predictable choice probably who's next 
Quadrophenia is maybe number two. Maybe The Who Sell Out would be number three. It's, that's a very good top three albums. That's a very good discography to choose albums from. Yeah, they can really do many studio albums. They only did like 10 of them. Yeah. I went back and re-listened to a lot of their catalog to prepare for this, and I had forgotten how sparse their discography was. You know, when you think that their career was roughly the same amount of time as like the Rolling Stones, they released a lot less material than the Stones did, which maybe worked in their favor because the Stones' discography is really overwhelming sometimes. Well, it seems like the Who have like 27 compilations and That's true. You know, 15 live <laughs> albums. And... That's very true. My top three songs. No, um... no stress. I didn't want that to be a stressful thing for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not. Okay. Even though I'll probably go like, why didn't I? choose that one for number three or, right <laughs> um number three actually is a kind of a quirky one it's a uh, magic bus i love magic bus magic bus was actually the first who song i ever heard really yeah it might have been vh1 i think it was like maybe seven years old and i caught them playing that really 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 old music video of them performing that on vh1 and i was like this is interesting i've never heard anything like that before and it was catchy and fun and i loved it it was one of john whistle's least favorite songs to play <laughs> was it really yeah because pretty much he's going dun 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 yeah dun dun <laughs> <laughs> Um, my number two would have to be uh, the real me, and it's—I mm-hmm. mean, all—I mean, all four members are just pretty much kicking ass at their instruments, oh, yeah. and I had to include something from Quadrophenia. Top of their game, 100%. And what a way to start an album! I know that's my favorite Who album. <laughs> second favorite who album is the who's next and i do think that is a perfect album oh even though i mean i've heard behind blue eyes and bob o'reilly and won't get fooled again so many times on the radio but they're still great songs not even limp biscuit could ruin behind blue eyes for me no they couldn't (laughs) even though they tried their hardest they really did they tried to ruin i wish you were here as well by pink floyd did they really yeah they did i think it was around the time when i think Hurricane Katrina or one of those events happened and oh my god <laughs> sorry to bring that it's into okay, your life no. <laughs> um, and then my number one uh, who song choice would be it has to be Bargain off of Who's Next it has pretty much all the ingredients I'm looking for in a Who song you got your cool synth lines you got Keith Moon coming in right away with his crazy drumming Roger singing Pete Townsend's lyrics are such a passion. You got the kind of the middle eight where Pete sings. <laughs> and just all <laughs> all four members are just kicking butt. And it's, I just love that song, man. It's just my favorite. I can't lose me to pass you. I gotta give up all I have. that played live in the studio kind of feel to it i wonder if they did record it live yeah they they did do a live version of it um there's a live <laughs> version back from 1971 which is was originally off the who's missing compilation album they had some unreleased tracks and b-sides and it also got released on the 30 years of maximum r&b box set back in 1994 oh, yeah. yeah unfortunately for me i sometimes think of a car commercial when i hear it was it ford one of the car companies was using that as their their jingle yeah i remember that time yeah Yeah. you gotta make money i guess because it's just i mean the music industry has changed and that's true my dad was a huge who fan 
I remember in particular Quadrophenia being played a lot. That was my first full album that I heard by them. It's hard. He played a lot. The other one I remember hearing pretty frequently was Who Are You? How do you feel about uh, Face Dances and It's Hard? Because I know a lot of people have differing opinions on those two albums that were released without uh, Keith Min on drums since... Unfortunately, yeah. he passed away from a drug overdose in 1978. How do you feel about those two albums? I prefer It's Hard to Face Dances. I like both of them. I don't know if I love either of them. I don't dislike really any of the songs on either of them. At the same time, none of them really grab me in the same way that some of their more powerful songs do. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. Uh, face Dances, I really I really like Face Dances. I like mm-hmm. that from top to bottom. I know... Uh, Pat Francis of Rock Solid really likes that album too. It's hard. I like most of It's Hard. Um, Eminence Front is a pretty good song on there. Uh, I really like Athena. I don't think those albums are too bad. I mean, it's going to be hard to replace Keith Moon. I think that's what a lot of people complain about on right. those two albums, that the drumming doesn't sound like Moon, but who's going to? Exactly, yeah. Replacing Keith Moon is hard. I'd maybe put Face Dances at number five on my Who albums. I just really like that album. I think the reason that It's Hard might have the edge for me is simply because I was introduced to it earlier. I came into Face Dances a lot later. It's Hard is a little bit more in my DNA than Face Dances. Where would you rank Tommy among the discography? Oh, um, I would probably give that, I'd probably give that a good solid six, maybe, like, before face dances for me i really like tommy the original album this Mm -hmm. problem i kind of have with the who's tommy is i think it's a little overrated in my book and tommy it's tommy's kind of been its own thing away from the who a bit because there's some people that just kind of associate the who with tommy when tommy first came out in 1969 there was wildly acclaimed by critics and they saw it as like a breakthrough and hugely inventive and i think now you know, five decades later, its reputation has diminished a little bit. I agree with you. As a whole, it doesn't totally hold up 100%. The high points on Tommy, for my, in my opinion, are some of the best work the Who's ever done. But on a whole, it might not be one of the tops. Yeah, there's some really shaky pieces on Tommy. But I mean, there's also a lot of highlights on Tommy as well. When I went back and listened to the album again, I found that there was a lot of directionless instrumental passages that really got boring. The funny thing is I kind of liked his directionless instrumental oh, passages. <laughs> I, I think it's yeah. just because I'm a musician. I mean, yeah. I, I played drums for quite a number of years and it's just i I like hearing musicians play so i know some people don't like musicians wanking off as they say like when they're just and see and i love that kind of thing too i guess what's coming to mind is something like underture it's the same theme just repeated like five or six times for 10 minutes you know what i mean i welcome and embrace a 10 minute instrumental piece i really do but it gets very repetitive to me yeah i can kind of see why they didn't really play it in the set list when they mm-hmm. decided to take it live after they released the album i noticed the thing too about that album it's kind of lo-fi a bit there's not really a lot of electric guitar and the reason is that they ran out of money recording that yeah. they were in debt at the time they were weren't really doing well in the uk at the time in their home country i like it started with i can see for miles only going to you know the whopping low number 10 but like <laughs> they did magic bus and that only went to like number 25 and they did a single called dogs which is like one of the weirdest singles they ever <laughs> did i think that went to like number 39 to promote magic bus they were on a kids tv show called cracker jack playing magic bus and that goes to show how bad they were doing in the uk at the time <laughs> Now in the U.S., their popularity was growing at the time. A big word of mouth was going on about The Who, and Rolling Stone magazine was a new magazine that came out. Pete Townsend was just coming up with the idea of Tommy, and he did a big interview with John Winter. A big chunk of that interview was talking about how he was coming up with this idea for an opera called Deaf, Dumb, and Blind Boy, and pretty much laying out the outline for Tommy. The U.K. press were... Calling Pete Townsend sick when he came out when the the Who came out with the Pinball Wizard single in advance of the album, they must have just been really sensitive to it, just making references to a deaf, dumb, and blind boy. Yeah. But when they uh, performed the album a couple months later, the critics really liked it, and mm. it became like a big smash. Yeah, that's definitely the cornerstone of that album. It is, and it was written as a last minute type thing because Pete Townsend had a critic friend named Nick Cohn who was like really big in the pinball at the time. 
Nick Hearn's the guy that later came up with the script idea for uh, Saturday Night Fever. Oh, no kidding. Wow. But pretty much he played Nick the album, and Pete's like, well, will you give this a good review? It's like, uh, I don't know if I want to give this a good review because it's kind of boring. It's very spiritual and preachy. And, and then Pete Townsend's like, what if there's a song about Tommy becoming a pinball wizard? And then Nick's like, well, I'll give it five stars. <laughs> so he pretty much wrote Pinball Wizard. And that became a big hit single. Uh, it got The Who back up in the charts in the UK at number four, and I think it went to number 19 in the States. He's a pinball wizard that has to be a twist. A pinball wizard's got such a I know that the recording of the album was drawn out. In particular, I think John Entwistle had said that he was getting pretty tired of constantly re-recording and revamping the song, and it just got very exhausting. It did, and they didn't really finish the album because they, I mean, like I said, they were in debt, and they were touring at the same time. It just simply didn't get finished. Like Pete really originally wanted to have louder guitar in there, some more electric guitar. Like You kind of notice if you listen to the album, it's a lot of acoustic. I don't know if the vocals got finished all the way, too, because there's kind of like a lot of quieter vocals, like guide vocals. It's not yeah, as fleshed out true. as Robert Daltrey sings. One of the things that I kind of struggled with was you have this tapestry of characters in the the story of Tommy, but they're all sung by one person, and it's hard to parse out who's who and which character's saying what. Yeah, it's like Pete Townsend's doing Tommy, and he's doing the narrator, he's doing yep. Tommy's dad, he's playing <laughs> the Acid Queen. Yeah. What is your opinion of Pete Townsend as a vocalist? I really like Pete Townsend as a vocalist. He's different than Roger Daltrey, of course. And I really like the demo albums that he released later in the 80s called... Uh, it's part of the Scoop series. There's Scoop, another Scoop, and Scoop Free. And he sings well on those. I think they would do well on there, and not as well as The Who would have done. And yeah. I really like uh, Pete Townsend's solo career as well. I do too. I, I very much enjoy his solo output. Keith Moon's solo album is a little bit different. You know, I haven't heard it. Uh, you don't want to. Okay. I guess we could get into the film. Uh, I'm ready to talk about the film. I'm going to give it like a real quick plot summary the who's seminal 1969 concept album coming to life in a phantasmagorical film adaptation the who's lead singer roger daltrey plays the titular deaf dumb and blind pinball wizard whose psychosomatic state is brought upon after witnessing the accidental murder of his presumed dead father by his stepdad tommy finds refuge in playing pinball in which his superhuman talents turn him into a messiah and cult leader whose followers eventually turn their backs on him i think that that's a pretty good summary of it yeah it's a pretty convoluted story. It is. I mean, the story was kind of weird to begin with. And I mean, even at the time when Pete Townsend was kind of doing the album and was discussing with his manager, and they kind of both thought it was a little bit dopey plot. And Kit Lambert, their manager, is like, but yeah, but all operas kind of are kind of do have dopey plots. And Now, is it true that the original album, his concept that he wanted to convey was kind of a commentary on the hypocrisy of religion and the damaging effect that that can have on people and their spirituality and that changed in the creation of the film adaptation i think that's a pretty accurate description um, pete townsend was getting heavily into spiritualism about the time he was making tommy he got into the teachings of Meher baba and the tommy album's a pretty big inspiration behind that i will say that tommy is a piece of work for somebody that age to develop and to put together is pretty astonishing i'd say so i'm curious as to what led them to make that decision to do a film version um film version was in the works ever since the tommy album came out um, oh, it was. there was okay. a bunch of films there was a bunch of film studios interested in the project um there was kind of a close to getting off the ground around 1973 uh hammer films was interested in actually doing an adaptation of tommy hmm. um that deal ended up falling through and they got backing from uh, Robert Stigwood who was the manager of the Bee Gees at the time and mm. at a production company called RSO and they decided to finance the film so they went, went ahead and started doing the film uh, they got Ken Russell as the director yes a very very unique director have you seen any of his other movies 
this is the only one I've seen all the way through. Um, mm-hmm. I started watching Listomania and kind of got <laughs> lost about yeah. 15 minutes into it because it seems like it's a film made for fans of classical music and you got to kind of know the references. And yeah, yeah. I just got completely lost. Are you familiar with Ken Russell's other work? Like, what's his other work? I am. Like? I've seen a few of his other movies. He's probably mostly known for his 1980 movie called Altered State, which is actually a film I have not seen, but I've heard it's really, really good. I recently watched a movie called The Devils from 1971. It was his breakthrough movie. That film is quite an experience. It's a horror film. It takes place in the Dark Ages. Oliver Reed is actually the starring actor in it, and um, it's about this group of sexually repressed nuns in the Dark Ages who fall under the spell of Oliver Reed's character, who's a priest, who's getting married to this other lady, and all the nuns become jealous, and they... They have the sexual awakening and there's like orgies in the in the nunnery and it's just it's bonkers. To me, that movie really sums up the Ken Russell aesthetic more than any other film. Vanessa Redgrave plays the mother abbess in that. A very Halloween-y movie. So if you get a chance, if you happen upon that one, I would check it out. I might check that out. Some profoundly disturbing images in it, however. So just as a warning. Yeah, there's some disturbing images in this Tommy film as well. Yes. <laughs> Tommy, I kind of got... I watched, it was kind of early into me getting into The Who, and I had heard the Tommy album by this point, and I knew that there was a film version of this, and I thought, this might be a good film. It's not like they're going to sing every song in the film, and there's going to be some horrible singing and some horrible images in it, and... (laughs) I watched the film and it freaked me out. It's wow. I just don't know just where they come up with a lot of the images that are in that film. Cocaine. With, yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> what seventy-five? I, I know that whole sequence of Anne Margaret and the oh the, the beans. baked beans and the chocolate <laughs> coming out. Oh God, man, that that image scarred me as a yeah. child. You know what it was for me when I was younger? It wasn't that one? That one I thought was funny. But it was the acid queen (laughs) when she puts him in that armor and it opens up and then he has like the flowers and there's blood dripping down. It closes back up and then there's snakes inside of his skeleton. That was what I didn't like when I was a kid. I thought that was a cool sequence as a kid. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's one of the better sequences now. You know, honestly, Tina almost steals the movie for me. Yeah, that's definitely one of the highlights of the film. I think that's one of the songs that's better on the soundtrack than it is on the album. It's It was just kind of always weird of having Pete Townsend sing about the Acid Queen. <laughs> right. And when Tina Turner sings it, it just fits a lot more. Oh, it does. It just, it's, and did you know that Tina Turner almost didn't get that part? It was it, supposed to go to David Bowie originally. Really? I didn't know David Bowie was originally supposed to get that part. Yeah, it was between... Wow. It was between Tina Turner and David Bowie, and I guess last minute he stepped out of the picture, so Tina got the part. Give us a room, close the door, leave us for a while. You won't be a boy no more, young but not a child. You know who was originally suggested to play the pinball wizard? It was uh, Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did read about that. A blind man playing the <laughs> pinball wizard. <laughs> I think, isn't that why Pete Townsend put the kibosh on that? Yeah, pretty much. Because why would he play him? He's blind. Right. <laughs> and Stevie Wonder was not happy about that because Eric Clapton does Eyesight to the Blind on that track, and he wanted to get Stevie Wonder to play on it. And they went down to the studio, and Stevie Wonder just pretty much the ignored pete townsend because he was pissed that he didn't get the part of the pinball wizard elton john doing that song is the other scene stealing moment from that film yeah i really like that scene too i might like elton john's version of pinball wizard better than the who's version actually i I do for sure
Other than those two performances, it seems like the original album versions are better than the soundtrack versions. As we're going to get into some of the bad singers on this album. <laughs> Odd. Who are some of the uh, rougher performances? Uh, a one Oliver Reed. Do you think and it's it, all it right? Wasn't... Yeah, I think it's all right. <laughs> I think it's all right. <laughs> Do you think it's all right? I think it's all right. Yes, I think it's all right. And Margaret doesn't really do, do that much better either. It's like a musical theater performance artist doing the song. That's <laughs> yeah. what it kind of comes off as. That's true. Like somebody on American Idol doing the right. Who's Tommy or something like that. And I like Anne Margaret, and I actually like her in that role, but it's not always the most pleasant voice to listen to. I think her voice suits the character, but it's not a voice that's pleasant to listen to outside of the context of the movie and the story. She did well in the film. She got nominated for an Oscar for, for her performance. Which says a lot when you're writhing in a bunch of baked chocolate bean, and chocolate baked beans. Sludge. They really, in that scene, I'd forgotten how intense the explosion of beans was coming out of that TV. <laughs> Give it a full throttle attack of beans. She goes flying. <laughs> <laughs> she got injured during that scene. A piece of glass got lacerated into her hand. She had to be taken to the ER and oh my God. Get, got her hand in stitches. And I mean, filming continued after that, but she chucked the bottle of champagne into the TV. So I could imagine that the glass went everywhere and it probably, she probably didn't see it in the middle of all that chocolate. And that whole thing ended up being a fantasy sequence because she was sort of having a nervous breakdown. Her husband walks in and sees her rolling around the floor and the chocolate, the beans and the, the laundry soap. It was all just part of her mental collapse, which was brought upon by Tommy's newfound fame. That's a weird sequence to come of to somebody becoming famous. The, yeah. I don't know why baked beans and chocolate <laughs> come into the mix, but... <laughs> There was a scene about Tommy being exalted as this pinball wizard and he was making news. And in between the news coverage, there were commercials for like baked beans and laundry soap. And I think that was just her just like, I don't know if it was symbolizing, you know, like I don't want Tommy as a part of my life because he's getting all the fame that I always wanted. So I'm going to just immerse myself in all this shit. I don't know. <laughs> it was just weird. Apparently, I've read that Ken Russell did some baked beans commercials back in the day, and <laughs> that whole sequence is supposed to be like revenge on those commercial companies. Well, if that's the case, he's definitely, he got his revenge. Yeah. We talked about Anne Margaret and Oliver Reed. Keith Moon. Yeah. Another bad singer. Jack Nicholson. Yeah, he has a cameo in here. Yeah, the whole Cousin Kevin thing was troublesome. In 1975, things were a little bit different. Yeah, that Uncle Ernie sequence is weird, too. It's that's pretty creepy. I thought it was very unfortunate that at the end, when Tommy's parents come home and hear him, you know, fiddling about, that they show him with a newspaper open up that says gay news on it. And to me, it's just like, oh, the suggestion there is that gay people are child molesters. And it didn't send a real great message. Definitely yeah. not a good message. A lot of the abuse that's portrayed in this movie both the sexual abuse and the psychological abuse that he gets from the bullies it's not handled very thoughtfully it's not and pete townsend didn't write a uh, fiddle about her cousin kevin because even when he was doing the album those subjects troubled him because um pete townsend was a victim of sexual abuse when he was a kid oh, wow. it just kind of he found that very hard to write about so he got john entwistle to write the songs about sexual abuse and bullying because wow. Pete couldn't handle it. John Entwistle did do some good songs, but his writing style is definitely different than Pete Townsend It sticks out. He did more things, kind of more of a sarcastic, kind of dark humorous tone. A lot of his songs are have a lot of dark humor in them. Yeah, and he was a, might have been the most gifted musician of all four of them because he plays French horn on the original album. Yes, he does. And that is special to me too because my brother's a professional French horn player. <laughs> So when I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Like, do you ask him, hey, can you play that one part from Tommy? <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the Cousin Kevin stuff, I was kind of laughing when I was watching the film because I've never seen such egregiously irresponsible parenting as I have in this movie. <laughs> it's like, oh, do you think it's all right if he stays with Uncle Ernie? He's had a few too many, but yeah, I think it's all right. Yeah, I've read a lot of notes down about how Tommy's parents are bad. Yeah, let's get uh, into that. Let's. Oh, it's just, I mean, starting out, I mean, Tommy's mom, and she's in a relationship with Captain Walker. Now it's World War II time, and that happens, and he becomes a fire pilot, and assumingly his plane gets shot down, and he's presumed dead at this point. Um, mm. Tommy is born, and 
Tommy's mom, I guess, once again, into a relationship, um, they go to a holiday camp and she meets up with Oliver Reed's character. Is his name like Hobbs or I didn't write down his name. It's like a weird. Yeah. Uncle Bernie. Imaginative name. Tommy's mom and Uncle Bernie fall in love. And apparently Tommy's dad comes back in the middle of the night and he finds them having an affair. And Tommy sees this and Captain Walker dies by lightly getting hit by a lamp, which I don't know if anybody can die from just simply getting touched by a lamp. Yeah, that's. I was wondering that too. It seemed a little (laughs) weird. Uh, maybe he was burned by the light bulb. It could. It, it's probably implied that he did, or maybe the bulb shattered and it got into <laughs> his brain or something. It's not really shown, so we just have to suspend a lot of disbelief there. It, it's funnier in my mind if he just got lightly touched by the lamp and died. He was in such a fragile state when he came back home that all it took was making physical contact with the lamp, and he was done. <laughs> <laughs> but basically. Uh, Tommy sees this and is dramatized, and of course, and he becomes deaf, dumb, and blind at this point. When they were yelling at him, you know, you ever heard it, not one word of it. That kind of got me. I was kind of getting some feels there because I felt so bad for him. And that little kid that played the young Tommy kind of got to me. He had that empty gaze, and I was like, oh. He did it well, but he also kind of creeped me out, too. I think a it's just, that's something with good actors, I guess. Yeah. I guess some just <laughs> creep me out. Well, when he starts picking his nose at the Christmas party, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm over it. Yeah, and when he starts singing, it's it's kind of into Oliver Reed territory at that point. But basically, I mean, they go on about like he's not deaf, dumb, and blind. And just like you would think like, hey, something's going on with Tommy. We need to get this taken care of. And they just come off as like, well, we only care about ourselves, which they pretty much do. It's like, yep. let's send Tommy <laughs> off to Uncle Ernie. Let's send him off to Cousin Kevin. Let's yeah. send him off to a drunk preacher. And <laughs> right. and let's send him off to this hooker that likes putting people in a device that has all these syringes. And, <laughs> and it'll just dump acid into his veins. <laughs> That'll cure him. I'm going to throw my... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw my son through a mirror. <laughs> exactly. While I hook up with his doctor. <laughs> I'm not going to lock the doors, so he'll <laughs> wander off to a junkyard and play a pinball. Play pinball. Somehow happened upon a pinball machine in this junkyard. Yeah, where's the electricity in that junkyard? Unless he imagined it. That could have been another sequence thing. The whole second half of the film could just be a dream sequence. Could be. It could be like a Jacob's Ladder scenario. Yeah. Hey, anything's possible in the Tommy universe. The last 15, 20 minutes of the movie, I started to check a little bit out. I found it got less interesting as it went on. I feel the same way, too. Even on the original album, that has some of the weaker parts. Like, I don't yeah. think Sally Simpson's that great of a song. It's that not. sequence freaked me out as an adult because <laughs> it's like kids marrying each other and Sally Simpson's pregnant as a kid. And it's. <laughs> How creepy is it that Ken Russell's daughter plays Sally Simpson? I didn't know that was his daughter playing yep. Sally Simpson. Yeah, that, that gives it, makes it even more creepier. Yeah, that has a whole new spin to it. From the start, deep down in her heart, she and Tommy were walls apart. But her mother said, never mind, she fought is to be. Welcome's not very good. Um, that wasn't even played in the Who set back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I think they recently, a couple of years ago, when they did Tommy at the Royal Albert Hall, they brought that into the set list. But It was yeah. not a welcome edition. <laughs> <laughs> nope. It gets boring in side four, and the same thing for the movie. Come to my house, be one of the comfortable people. Lovely bright home, we're drinking all night, never sleeping. Milkman coming, and you baker, little old lady welcome, and you shoemaker, come to this house. I found myself getting very confused with the plot around that time too. I it just my brain wanted to stop engaging in what was happening because there was. I just didn't understand at that point with the Tommy crosses and clearly he was thought of as a Christ-like figure, but I just didn't connect to that. I didn't either. Were there some other highlights for you? 
like when Roger Daltrey starts singing, that's that's fine by me because right. after hearing a lot of all these bad singers, it's like nice to hear Roger again sing. <laughs> Suddenly hear him scream, I'm free. Free! I like that they made that change in the running order. I felt that made a lot more sense than it did in the album. Yeah, I think like on the album, doesn't it go into sensation, I think? Yeah, that closes out side three, I believe. Yeah, I think I'm Free does work a lot better after. Right. right. I think that's that's the way they did it live, too. When After the album was released, I think I'm Free followed uh, Smash the Mirror. I liked the Eric Clapton sequence for the most part. I liked his performance of the song. I don't know if I liked what they did with the sequence with the Marilyn Monroe thing. That was weird. That was weird. And apparently Eric Clapton was pretty drunk when he did that sequence. Was he really? <laughs> he was. And this was around the time where he got off of heroin and then started going into a heavy addiction of alcohol, which oh, got geez. really bad for Eric. Eric wasn't really interested in doing the film, but his manager was Robert Stigwood. Um, mm-hmm. This was around the time of his comeback when... He came out with the 461 Edition Boulevard album, and mm-hmm. the big hit off of that was I Shot the Sheriff. And Eric Clapton was not comfortable in front of a camera, so he proceeded to get pretty drunk during that sequence, and it shows. Yeah. And Arthur Brown makes a cameo in that same scene. He does. I, I, I liked Arthur Brown. Yeah. Didn't get a whole lot to do, but he makes the most of his screen time. Talk about your woman. I wish you could see mine. Talk about your woman. I wish you could see mine. Every time she starts to love, she brings eyesight to the blind. Oh, yeah. A lot of lip syncing was not good. I'm sure it was. <laughs> A lot of the sound synchronization seemed really off. I didn't really notice it that much, but May was just blown away by the bad performances. Like, I didn't notice it as much. Maybe. <laughs> There's a lot of images of balls in the film, I noticed. There's a lot of pinball imagery. Even at the start of the film, they start inundating you with ball imagery. It's like, okay, we're going to beat, you're going to have the pinball wizard sequence later, but you got to sit through all this stuff first. Right. <laughs> You have to sit through a lot of crap to get through, like, the two amazing performances. I mean, those are the performances that sand out the acid queen and pinball wizard. And that's yeah. what most people talk about, it seems like. You don't mm-hmm. really hear much about the baked beans and the Cousin Kevin sequence and mm-hmm. Welcome, of course. And the closing scene, too, where he's running into the distance, but he's levitating. And there's clearly, a, like, a green screen. And it's some of the worst use of green screen I've seen. <laughs> 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 it's like one of those make your own video booths at like Kings yeah. Island or amusement park. Yes. It's funny. All that being said, I enjoyed the experience of watching it. I found it entertaining. I found it. Yeah, I think I liked amusing. it. I liked it a lot better the second this uh, watching it as a doll. I think I got it a little bit more this time. Mm-hmm. It still kind of creeped me out, actually. Like, a, oh, me I'd too. be thinking about it after it was done. They didn't really use the amazing journey sequence that well. Like, like what Tommy's actually kind of experiencing throughout the film. Like you see what's happening from the outside for most of the part, but mm-hmm. what Tommy's actually experienced, because he's not actually deaf, dumb, and blind. He's just kind of like in this catatonic state where he's experiencing something else. He's experiencing things through music, which was kind of like the concept of the album a bit, but it's not really brought across well in the film. No, it's very unclear. Hence the whole mirror thing too, you know. I guess it was supposed to symbolize like a breakthrough because he broke the mirror. She broke the mirror and that set him free. But it's all very maybe it's, vague. Maybe it's like Pink Floyd's The Wall where he's like, this guy is building a wall, conceptual wall around himself where he's not socializing with anybody. It's just kind of into himself and trying to shut himself off in the world. And the breaking of that mirror and Tommy is kind of like the wall coming down Pink Floyd's The Wall a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a like good way bring of bringing him back it. into reality. Father got a little bit better after he experienced that breakthrough, but I mean, Oliver Reed still being the same self-absorbed asshole mm-hmm. figured out like, hey, we're, we're gonna get 
let's do this Tommy's holiday cam and get shit ton of money from it. And, uh, and then Tommy's alert, parents are the worst. Oh my God. They're awful. And then spoiler alert, they get murdered at the end by the campers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a massacre at the end of the film. And it's kind of a, like a brutal, gory murder. It's, I was shocked by it. it. Is. They were battered and bloody. Yeah, that, <laughs> was pretty awful. that is a that was a brutal sequence. Yeah. Um, what was the deal with the cage bed at the beginning of the film when, Aunt, when uh, Tommy's mom is sleeping through it? Same with flapper girls and gas mask and just kind of yeah. going through all my notes. There's a lot of synthesizers in this film. I noticed. It's yes. Like you tried to make Tommy quadrophenia and they've failed. Oh yeah. I noticed that too right away, and because it, it hits you from the first frame, it was sort of like, like listening. Synthesizers. Yeah, it was like listening to like an Emerson, Lake and Palmer filtered version of Tommy. Yeah, Pete Townsend was involved throughout the whole film soundtrack. I mean, he spent hours and hours on it, and mm-hmm. it pretty much drove him to exhaustion. Um, the Who were also touring. They did some concerts around the time they were filming Tommy. Um, they did a four-night stand at Madison Square Garden, and Pete was not having a very good experience. Um, there was people shouting the play Magic Bus and Boris the Spider and Smash Your Guitar, Pete. And the band was not really going through a good period before Tommy. I know Quadrophenia is like now and then is one of the great Who albums, but at the time it was not that well received. And Tommy did very well when it was performed live. Quadrophenia, when they performed it live, they had lots of problems. Um, there was a lot of tape problems because they had a lot of backing tapes because you couldn't really do live synthesizer stuff in concert and they were dealing with quadraphonic sound and since they were performing in america i mean quadraphenia is kind of basically like a british story so there's a lot of moments where roger daltrey had to explain a lot what was going on before the song happened and it kind of broke the momentum of the performance and things were not going well for daltrey and townsend at that point townsend actually got knocked out by daltrey one day because they were trying to do a promo film for quadrophenia and ended up there was no camera in the film and pete was oh, wow. drunk and tried to start a fight with roger and pete tried to like landed like a bad punch and roger just pretty much knocked him out cold oh my god there was a lot of band tension back in 1966 there was a bunch of times where John Whistle and Keith Moon left the Who and then came back and Roger Daltrey was kicked out of the band at one point and brought back in and John Whistle and Keith Moon were going to join a group with Jeff Beck and they were going to call it Led Zeppelin because they thought it would go down like a lead balloon. <laughs> what happened with them? Did they ever make it? <laughs> I don't know if I ever heard of this Led Zeppelin group. Yeah, it's... It's an interesting film experience still. I don't think time has really been very kind to it. But I think if you're a rock fan, if you're a Who fan, if you're a music fan, I think you should give it a shot. I was reading that this is the only movie ever made to use, I think it was called, like you said, quadraphonic sound. Uh, Tommy was kind of a guinea pig for that new system. And I guess it didn't go over very well. So this was the only film in history that used quadraphonic sound actually it was called quintaphonic and is that what it was, was okay first, yeah it was the first use of uh five speakers i think fantasia might have had five speakers but that was like the only film prior mm-hmm. to tommy hmm. and so tommy was like one of the pioneers of doing surround sound like that the 5.1 surround sound yeah i bet some theaters are made like if you went to like new york or los angeles or london you might be able to get Quintophonic, but if you're like in Des Moines, Iowa, it's probably just going to be your normal <laughs> stereo sound. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, I don't think it's one of the highlights of the Who's career, and it doesn't really stand up as a film, but go check out the Pinball Wizard and Acid Queen sequences. I mean, those are pretty cool to watch. Just check out the film, just see what you think about it. You might like it. If you like a ridiculous 1970s musical, <laughs> with the who go check it out very very campy i will say this movie is a visual treat i did like the visuals even though some were very creepy right (laughs) as much as we ragged on the supporting cast for their singing abilities i will say what daltrey has in singing chops he kind of doesn't have an acting chops yeah that works out he was fine like i mean 
two thirds of I mean, the movie, he, he just did, stands there and stares into space. You know, he didn't do too bad, considering it was his first. Was it his first film role? Yeah, it was his first film role. He liked filming Tommy, so he ended up doing Westomania with Ken Russell after that. Were those his only film roles? Do you know? No, he's been in a bunch of films. Uh, he was in another Who Films production. It was called Nick Vicar. Oh yeah, and, okay. And that's about a British criminal. I, I don't really know too much about it. I'd like to see it. I know I've heard the soundtrack, and I really like some of the songs off of that. I think Quadrophenia should get covered, because that's an example of a Who album being turned into a good film. Yeah. So I really like Quadrophenia. Yeah, I do too. I haven't seen that in a while, but I, I liked it a lot when I saw it. Although I remember being disappointed by the lack of music in it. Well, you still got some music, but... I think it works better as a drama instead of having a musical and having every number sang. Right, right. I mean, look at Tommy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you think Tommy would have worked well if they did it as a drama? I don't know. The plot is so out there that I don't know if it would have translated to a drama. It might have been too absurd. Like it wasn't absurd already. Well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's true. It'd be an interesting experiment, though. And then Tommy went on to be a Broadway sensation. Yeah, it did. Uh, That happened in 1993. And that did pretty well. It's still being performed like at colleges and high schools a lot. Yeah, it's. I mean, Tommy is still going on to this day. It's kind of like had its own career outside the Who. And I think maybe that's part of why the original album doesn't hold up as well. It's because it's been done more often better once you were able to refine the property of tommy it's been improved upon have you seen the stage play i haven't seen the stage play it it probably worked i'd probably like it better as a stage play than i did the film it just kind of lends itself to that it does i would be interested in seeing i haven't seen it either what else should we get into i think that's about it actually i kind of had some like minor notes but sally simpson really likes the first roger daltrey album yeah that song really stands out as a low point yeah i think that song was actually written before tommy was so it was kind of just i think they must have ran out of songs let's put this one on there just threw it on there i think there were a couple songs where they tacked it onto the album to fill it up a little bit sensation was written before tommy too welcome i believe was written before Tommy. just the songs that were pretty much written before tommy it just you can tell that it kind of feels like filler even though i like the musicianship and undertrue i don't think it really belongs on the album just stick with sparks it's yeah seven minutes shorter i think it would have been fine if it was maybe two or three minutes long and i know that he was trying to portray the acid trip in musical form which is great but it didn't need to be 10 minutes long yeah have you ever seen they the did who? fine I, d- I have seen the who i saw them with my dad with uh, robert plant opening up back in 2002 and this wow. was the first tour without john it whistle and i remember when john it whistle died too because we had tickets for the show, and I was watching like an old 70s Saturday Night Live on E. There was a news update about John Itwistle passing away, and I was sad by the news and worried, too. Like I thought that was it for The Who. The concert's going to get canceled. I'm not going to be able to see him. And they had to carry on with that tour because they had a bunch of tour people, and they were going to lose money if the tour is canceled so they pretty much soldiered on but it was a great show though they played with a lot of passion maybe it's just because john had died and they kind of wanted to honor him a bit so yeah that must have been a very sensitive time i'm sure it was hard for them to finish the tour i'm sure but they kept they, they still perform live now even though i think yeah. they're, they're trying to slow down at this point I've never had the the privilege of seeing them. And I have not seen The Kids Are All Right. It's a concert film, right? It's kind of a con- it's a compilation of concert footage and interview footage stuff that was on TV. It's you can tell it was made by a big fan of the band. It's it's a great film. You should check it out. It's a little bit different from your typical documentary. It's just pretty much a compilation showing how awesome the Who are. And it's a little different from Tommy. Yeah, it's an actual good film. <laughs> I mean, Tommy's not that bad. Like, I used to think it was like the most horrible film because it scarred me as a child. Now now it's like better than some films that come out. So it's definitely a mid 70s period piece. Yeah, it's just like, okay, if I want to watch Pinball Wizard and Acid Queen, I'll go ahead and watch Tommy. If I just want a nice visual campy film to watch, it's a good one to watch. It looks great on Blu-ray. I have it on Blu-ray. Oh, do you really? I rented it on amazon prime i was gonna look at the library to see if i could take it out and maybe listen to the commentary but unfortunately they didn't have it available so i was a little disappointed and the sad thing is on the blu-ray it doesn't have the commentary as it did on the dvd 
situation. I don't know why they didn't put that on there. Yeah, I wouldn't like to kind of get Ken Russell's insight on this. In the 1972, they did an orchestral version, which they released as a double album, and it had Rod Stewart as the pinball wizard, and it had Ringo Starr as Uncle Ernie. Wow. I think Steve Winwood, uh, Richie Havens is also on it, uh, wow. Sandy Denny, um, Pete Roger, I think John Entwistle might be on there. Wow. Uh, Richard Harris is the doctor this no time. No kidding. <laughs> I have two of Richard Harris's thing, albums. Really? Yeah. <laughs> How are those? They're they're in my collection. <laughs> <laughs> That's same with my Keith Moon album. <laughs> right, right. It's on my shelf. Didn't they do a Tommy concert recently, like in the last year or so? Uh, yes, they did a couple of years ago. They performed the whole thing live at the Royal Albert Hall. That's mm-hmm. It's released as a CD, and you get such classics as uh, Welcome introduced back into the set. It did Undertur, but it's only like a minute. They did an all-star version back in 1989 when The Who did their first comeback tour. On that version, they had Phil Collins as Uncle Ernie. Uh, Billy Idol was Cousin Kevin. Patti wow. LaBelle was the Acid Queen. What? Elton John made a return. <laughs> yep. Wow. Elton John came back, and uh, Steve Winwood was the hawker. Wow. Billy Idols seems to have been a part of their career in the past 25 years pretty heavily. Yeah, he was also in the 1996 uh, Quadrophenia tour that they did as well. That's he right. was the bell. And he's opened up for them a lot, too. Yeah, I like Billy Idol. Yeah, I do, too. I don't know that much about him, but everything I've heard by him, I really enjoy. I've heard the singles. I've heard a couple of the album tracks off of Rebel Yell. I'd like to kind of get more into his catalog. Did we miss anything? Anything else that you want to cover or you think we've i think we're good on tommy i think we've done it justice i hope we've intrigued people enough to want to see the movie have some baked beans yes (laughs) make a pot full of baked beans and melt some chocolate and have a nice evening (laughs) and play some pinball when you're done i'm horrible at pinball by the way i'm okay at pinball Mm -hmm. i had a pinball machine when i was growing up oh really (laughs) Yeah, I just I don't have the reflexes for it. Maybe if I was blind, I'd be better at it. Deaf, dumb, and blind. Deaf, dumb, and blind. Yeah, you couldn't use the word dumb nowadays either. That was another thing. Mute. Yeah, it'd be yeah, deaf, mute, and blind. Also, the references to rape at the end during the last song. You know, gonna rape you. Wouldn't fly. Yeah, I wouldn't. So many. That's why from nineteen sixty nine. Oh yeah, oh yeah, in a major way. I would suggest that people who are interested check it out. I forgot to mention you being an Ohio person. Did you ever make it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, I've actually been there twice. They had some nice Who exhibition stuff too up there. Did you see it when they had the Tommy exhibition? I did not when they had the Tommy expedition. Because I remember that it was the whole fifth and sixth floor of the museum was dedicated just to Tommy. They had a lot of the paraphernalia from the movie and a lot of the notes from Pete Townsend's journal that he kept when he was creating the plot and everything. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I would have liked to have gone there when they had that expedition, but... It was a long, long time ago. First time it went, it was like in 1998, and they mm-hmm. had a psychedelic exhibit at the time, and they had like John Lennon's psychedelic Rolls Royce, and they had a smashed uh, Gibson SG from Pete Townsend, and it was splinters that was pretty cool to see it's a fun place to go if you're a rock fan it's it's really it's a blast yeah, yeah i'll have to go down there sometime again i mean it's it's not that far it's cleveland so yeah, yeah i think the who have a song about lake erie or somewhere in cleveland being on fire put oh, the money yeah. down on odds and sods i didn't finish going through their whole discogra- discography i definitely want to do that this week i think you'll have a good time listening so yeah for sure check them out i just want to give you a big 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 thank you makes me feel really good that people want to get their voices out there and talk about music and and participate in stuff like this it's really really cool and for you to take the time to do this is really awesome so i appreciate and i appreciate all your input and your notes and your hard work and everything into making this happen so applause (laughs) and and thanks again oh you're quite welcome josh it was really nice talking to you i hope you had a nice time and i i hope you will come back in the future i plan on doing so michael bagford where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media i'm on twitter at michael bagford M-I-C-H-A-E-L-B-A-G-F-O-R-D. And I'm part of the Rock Solid Single A Day 2018 group. And I pretty much post Single of the Day. Um, right now we're doing the 30-Day Song Challenge, where it's kind of a song that has an impact on your life, or it might be a song with a color in the title or 
somebody's name. It's a really, really cool kind of, project. Thanks. And there's a lot of cool people in that group, too, that I talk to. So yeah, it's the, fun interacting with you guys on social media. So many awesome people, so many really gracious and knowledgeable people. It's If any listeners who are not following these people in that group, I strongly urge you to do so because it's a wonderful internet neighborhood. If you'd like to follow me, my personal Twitter handle is joshsfitz61885. If you'd like to follow the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, it's um, at rockmoviespod. We also have an email address, which is moviesatrockpodcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to forward any questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, disagreements, ramblings, whatever you want to throw my way. Please feel welcome to do that. I'd also like to give a special thank you to Mr. Greg Chittister for the amazing theme music. And I'd like to apologize for mispronouncing your name in the last episode. I feel bad about that. So I wanted to just make sure I took care of that and make sure that I said your name properly the way that it should be. So thanks again for doing that for us. We love the theme music and I am looking forward to interacting with you some more and with lots of other amazing people out there in the podcast world. Lastly, if you could take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, if iTunes is, in fact, your method of choice when listening to podcasts, it would really be awesome if you could do that, and it would help people find the show and kind of build more of an audience for us. That would be really, really amazing. Have a great night, Mike. Thanks again. Bye, listeners. Bye, everybody. See me!